Welcome to episode 8 of season 15 of the Growing Empire Show. Today I'm here with my special guest, TJ Cozen, and he's going to talk about how he got started in real estate right out of college, as well as how his first deal was over 100 units, where he found it from, and more importantly, what he's doing today as far as wholesaling and raising capital. So make sure you stay tuned. Welcome to Growing Empires, hosted by real estate entrepreneur and trusted investment advisor, Jennifer DeJesus. Growing Empires provides insight to building wealth through passive income-producing real estate investments for those who want to build and manage a more profitable real estate portfolio. All right. Welcome, TJ, to the Growing Empire show. I'm so glad that you're here. Well, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Let's kick off this episode with you sharing a little bit about your background and the work that you're doing now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, kind of a long, long way to get there, I guess. I started in real estate in 2006. My first deal was actually 112 apartment units in Memphis. So that was a lot of fun. The only problem in 2006 with 2008 was right around the corner. So that was, uh, that was a fun couple of years getting into real estate right at the exciting time. Um, after that, uh, about 10 or 11, something like that, I went back to San Diego and spent a little bit of time kind of surfing, recouping and flipping a couple houses. So that was, uh, that was good. Probably should have bought a lot more, but we did pretty well buying stuff that was 75% off in California at the bottom of the market and then got married, uh, oh, 10 years. Oh my God. I think, yeah, I think we're coming up on our 10 year anniversary. So I hope your wife is not listening to this. No, unfortunately, (laughs) uh, she's not in the office right now. Um, Nine and a half years ago, moved out to Dallas. And uh, the mindset for moving out here was kind of a more volume based market, a more affordable market. And just we thought it'd be fun to have a change. It's fun, like as strange as that sounds coming from like California. And we love it. So that was, again, we moved out here actually, uh, yeah, nine years ago, about now. Been here ever since. Had some ups and downs and backs and forths. But right now we have a pretty decent volume. I think we have about 35, 36 deals on the board. I'm not sure. Uh, stuff comes on, stuff comes off. So I don't always know what, what exactly we have going on. But we definitely we move a lot of inventory, strictly distressed residential now. Uh, once in a while, we'll pick up something commercial, but it's generally by accident. And uh, that's kind of the business model, the history in a, like, I don't know, condensed, condensed period. All right. Awesome. Well, today we're going to talk about your wholesaling journey your real estate investing journey, and also about how you've acquired properties across multiple markets. So I've asked TJ to join me to share his wealth of knowledge that he's gained throughout the years on these subjects. So as we kick this off, I just want to bring up something that you just mentioned initially. You said your first deal was a hundred and how many units? 112. Yeah. 112. How in the world does somebody just start out investing and all of a sudden is it accumulating 112 units. That is definitely not normal. <laughs> the market was a little different in 2006. Uh, I was 24, 25, I think, something like that. So it's a little while ago. And um, I was poking around online and saw a couple deals. Thought it'd be fun to get into the commercial side of it uh, before it was all trendy. I don't even know if there was a bigger pockets at the time. I think there might have been. Um, and you know, I thought, what the hell, let's go do a shot. Uh, we bought it for, I don't remember, um, 800 grand, so whatever that is, about 7,000 units, something like that. Uh, wow. Capitalized about twelve to 13,000 unit. And our targeted exit price at the time was about 30K a unit, somewhere in that respect. Uh, I don't remember exactly. And okay. um, it was it just, I don't know, it made sense. So it wasn't that hard to raise a million bucks at 25, I guess, because our purchase price is only, you know, the 800s. Um, right. And the property now, I'm not really sure what it'd be worth. It's definitely an interesting market and a lot of changed both from the market, like 
holistically in that particular submarket over the past 16 years. Sure. And what market was that in that you bought that first deal? It was in Memphis. Memphis. Okay. And I heard you mention that you raised capital. So did you, was all of the money from raised capital? Did you do any bank financing at Mm. the time? Yeah, we did. We did some fun stuff. We did the creative thing before it was popular, I guess. Um, I bought it where I basically assumed the existing um, hard money loan that was from a local private investor. He'd actually had an ownership interest in the property like maybe 20 years before, so he was pretty familiar with it. Um, it was a pretty good terms, actually. I think it was about two points above prime, so pretty good for hard money. So as rates were coming down in 2000, kind of end of 2006, 2007, and part of 2008, uh, rates were coming down, which actually helped our interest carry, so that was cool. He had a relationship with a bank, so he, he effectively uh, had a line of credit with a bank that was secured, securitized on the property. So he anyway, he, he held the first. I uh, negotiated a relatively good size construction draw from him. I don't remember exactly what it was. Um, again, it was a long time ago. And then the sellers, I had them hold a 200K second on the property. Um, I think we came in with 15 or 20% down. So we raised the probably right around 170 to 200 grand, something like that. Um, we ended up capitalizing a lot more than we expected. So we had to raise other money that way. Um, but yeah, it was it was all kinds of creative before creative was popular. Uh, so it was, it was fun. It was a good time. It was a good first deal. Awesome. So you obviously had partners in this, right? Or mm-hmm. were equity partners, I should say. So how did you, did you, was this a, a wholesale deal? Or did you sell it right off? Was it a oh, fix no, and no. flip? No, we closed on it. Uh, we owned it from 2006 to 2000, either 10 or 11. I don't remember exactly. Uh, and it was, yeah, when we bought it, it was about 10 to 12% occupied. So not very occupied. Um, when we were at the peak of the market, it got up to about 95%, I think, economic occupancy of available units somewhere in that, in that area. I don't remember exactly. Um, and the market shifted. So we actually ended up losing money on it, which is never fun to do, but, um, but it was a, it was a big, yeah, just a big capital value add kind of project moved out there, managed everything, ended up hiring a bunch of the subs, had a crew at the age of 25 ish, uh, I don't know, we probably had 50 people working at for us at one point between subs and direct employees. Uh, it was, it's a lot of stories. Everyone says, you know, you should write a book about it, but uh, I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure your time is uh, valuable <laughs> and you're yeah. moving on to other things. So you said you self-managed, you moved out there and you self-managed. We did. What did you learn from that first experience? Um, again, it's such a different market. The, the management is absolutely key. And that's, I mean, I think that's important with anything we, and that definitely applies to any business like going forward. Right. So even with our, we have sales guys, acquisitions guys, dispo guys, we still have pretty good contractor crew. I think our payroll last week was like 65 K or something in contractor payroll. Um, so having a good management team in place that can manage that just kind of operational stress is, is hugely important. Uh, we tried hiring a management company out there that thought they were good at what they were doing. They actually ended up suing them and putting them out of business because they weren't very good. Um, oh, no. So that was, I mean, that was fun. I guess that's kind of why I moved back. It's like, wow, these guys are really screwing up. I probably better go back there and take charge. So I did. Um, and that was, that was just the most important, probably one of the most important lessons. We, I, like, I like keeping stuff in-house as well as we can. Not so much. Um, obviously, we don't hire like the direct labor ourselves so much. But control of the process was, was really important control of the project was really important in all of our deals. Uh, we've done uh, probably several hundred flips, just residential flips and control of the process has always been important. Um, you know, stuff always pops up. So you're always bumping into something you didn't expect maybe, uh, 
you know, and that happens. But when that happens, it's important to realize it's not the contractor's fault. It's, you know, whoever bought the property, whoever owns the job, it's their responsibility to take care of it. So between control and responsibility, those are the two biggest things I think we've probably learned from the experience was, you know, stuff goes right, stuff goes wrong. Uh, when stuff goes right, it's generally because the team that you put together is good. So I suppose you can take some credit for that. When stuff goes wrong, it's because you personally should have done better to not miss something. Um, it doesn't mean that, you know, you don't get surprised once in a while, but definitely we see it so often with investors, right? Where they, they want to blame the contractor for screwing them. They want to blame the seller for not telling them the truth. They want to, okay, but if you're the professional in the real estate environment, you're buying any kind of volume of deals, your first deal, or your 50th deal, it doesn't really matter. If you're the one representing yourself as the professional, then taking ownership of the project and being responsible as well as you can for the outcome is what's going to push you through the good times and the bad times. Yeah, I agree. Totally agree. So where, what's your background? Where did you, before you even got into real estate in 2006, what were you doing? Uh, I graduated college in 2004. So that was, I got, um, I don't know what I think of college, right? I don't know what I think. It's kind of popular to not think that uh, you should go to college now. Uh, I had a great time. I loved it. I got good grades. I got four degrees, two uh, uh, bachelors, one in history and one in business administration. And then I got two, I guess, or associates or minors, really. Um, one in math and one in theology. And I got that because I thought it'd be fun. Um, so I really enjoyed it. I think there's a lot of value to that. It's definitely not in the product that you learn or in the actual, like, I mean, yeah, I guess you learn accounting one or something, and maybe that's useful if you want to look at a balance sheet. But that's a lot more about the uh, experience, a lot more about the relationships. I'm still friends with a lot of those folks. And a lot more, I mean, it does prove that you can stick through something. In my case, uh, I think it was five years, but uh, you get the extra degrees, you got to take some extra time. Um, but you can stick through something and see it to the end. And that's applied really well in business where you have the responsibility of, again, what the outcome is. And that takes a lot of kind of fortitude. Now, I'm not saying college is for everyone. I'm not saying it's necessary. It's definitely not, uh, especially for financial success. But I think there's a lot of value that tends to get overlooked in the modern kind of entrepreneurial culture. So you went to college, you got these degrees. Why didn't you do anything with those degrees? specific oh, in those industries oh history well history you know it's funny my wife uh got a history degree same college four years younger than me so we didn't know each other then we met afterwards she was going back for a master's and something that she doesn't uh do anymore either because she works you know we work together um she thought it'd be fun to be a museum curator so she got a degree in history and some other stuff a degree in italian and theology and some other things i don't remember exactly she's got five degrees she got me beat by one <laughs> uh, that's where the master's comes in. <laughs> anyway, and then she got a job at the San Diego Automotive Museum uh, as a curator. I don't really know what a curator is, but she found out really quick, like, wow, that really doesn't pay well. And yeah, I can get a master's degree in history, and then I can wait for the head museum person to die, who also doesn't make any money. And then maybe I can get an advancement, and she's only 60, and these people last until they're 85 or 90 because they fundamentally have to love what they do. Um, and she thought, well, that's not really a good idea. So she got a master's degree, and then also didn't make a whole lot of money. So then we decided, you know, maybe we should do this real estate thing kind of together. And it turns out that that's actually financially a good way to go. Uh, I never wanted to work in corporate America. I never wanted to be an historian. I literally took the classes because I thought they were fun and interesting. Uh, I studied abroad in Oxford for a semester. I was going to get a history minor. So I, I did that. Like I studied abroad in Oxford for a semester. I knocked out all the classes for the minor in like one semester. And really kind of two, I guess. And then I came back and it's like, well, that was easy. Um, well, if I take six more, I get it a full on degree. So let's just take six more over the next like year and a half. And I just enjoyed it. It was fun. I think it gives an interesting perspective on uh, a lot of different things. Okay. So what made you decide real estate ultimately? 
what was it about real estate that was intriguing that made you think I'm going to, I'm going to do this? I think it doesn't everyone say financial freedom. Uh, I don't really know what that means. Um, I think the, I think that was probably the original, uh, objective was, as you might notice, I'm not retired because the office and we're still working. So obviously that's not what the actual objective is. Um, I think your objectives can change over time. I think my initial one was definitely financial ability to go kind of do whatever I wanted, provide for family, like that kind of stuff. And then at some point, uh, either that, in our case, losing money in the first deal was not fun. So then you reevaluate, well, what have I gained from it? And what you gain is the life skills of how to do kind of the thing that is a good thing to know how to do. And then when you kind of have that mindset shift, then for me at this point, it's not about financial freedom. That's actually relatively easy, I think. Um, it's about climbing the next hill. Because every time you climb a hill and get to somewhere, you kind of look around and it's never as big a hill as you thought it was going to be once you're on top. Now, when you're in the middle of it, it looks like the most massive hill you've ever been on. But I think every small business owner kind of going on to the entrepreneurial side probably has something similar where they start out with some goals and they maybe get to different goals. And for us, every time we, we level up, it's like, well, wow, that was really hard. And then we do it. It's like, well, that wasn't as hard as we thought. And then it's like, okay, who can we hire to help us do that better? So we hire them. And then we look around going like, well, now we're kind of bored again. Now we got to do like more of the thing. So we increase our volume, increase our marketing, increase our kind of velocity and um, build our team. So now what's more fulfilling than the money is really seeing the team members be successful and be able to provide for their families and do well because of the environment that we create and provide for them. That's awesome. So where did you find that first deal? Was it was it a like <laughs> off market deal? Was it on market at the time? What was it? This was embarrassing. I found it on Craigslist. Hey, listen, I, I, you should not, not be embarrassed. Good. It's by all means necessary, right? When you're investing in real estate, I don't think there's ever a one trick pony. I just was I mean, curious. Unless you're, unless you're dating, I guess Craigslist wasn't that bad back in the day. But yeah, no. no, that's true. That's true. Especially if you found a, a hundred and whatever unit deal. That's awesome. Uh, the, yeah. The owner put it on a couple. I was, I don't, so I was doing loans at the time in 2005, right? 2005 and six, um, kind of saw, Loans in California, because I'm from San Diego. And in, being in San Diego, you're always kind of aware that real estate is cyclical and up and downs because California sure. definitely has bigger swings than a lot of the rest of the country, including mm -hmm. pretty much everywhere. And 2008 is a, like, realistically, hopefully a once in a lifetime thing. Like, we haven't had a crash like that uh, in real estate probably since the savings and loan crash in, like, like the late 80s or mid 80s. So it's not really, but, you're, but California has, like, ups and downs more frequently than the rest of the country historically. So I thought, well, we're seeing all these loans. Like, obviously, the problem in the market at the time was uh, the residential loan product and the types of borrowers that were able to qualify for these not very good loans. Yeah. So the, the mindset was, well, let's get into investing, but let's not do it in California because it's overpriced and because we're going to have a correction because of this loan product that was in the system at the time. So well, let's look at other markets that are maybe more cash flow oriented, a little bit more stable um, from a uh, peak and value, value perspective and that are more uh, affordable and more manageable. So I nailed it down to a couple. Ironically, uh, we thought Dallas would be good. We thought Houston would be good. Um, Memphis looked good from a cash flow uh, idea. I think Katrina was still a th kind of a th like the aftermath of Katrina was still kind of happening in New Orleans. Um, so we kind of looked at that, but thought, eh, that sounds like a lot of like probably bureauc bureaucracy that we'd have to deal with, with like new codes after the hurricane. So like, I don't know, Memphis sounds a good combination of kind of equity appreciation and cash flow. Um, and then kind of started looking more and found the deal. Um, yeah, that's a long way of saying it.
I just, I guess, I guess I wanted to get out of loans. I didn't like loans. Uh, I didn't like the, I didn't like the product. Uh, we didn't do particularly bad loans in our company for the most part, but we definitely saw what was available in the marketplace and just like how that wasn't sustainable from a lending perspective. Uh, very different than the loans in the marketplace now. Very different borrower qualifications. Very different, like just all around. So we're not fixing to bump into two thousand eight round two. This one's going to be a lot different, um, and it is a lot different. Sure. So out of all the states in the U.S. that you could have gone to, why Texas? Why down south? Uh, Texas is the best country in the world. <laughs> and Dallas is the best. And Dallas is the best city in the best country in the world. Uh, it's because of the scenery. You know, it's a uh, it's flat. <laughs> okay um no we uh my wife and i wanted to change we got married and we thought it would be fun to move somewhere else so we looked at different spots that had a kind of robust real estate market uh we looked at areas that uh were on i don't know kind of tabloid journalist things like business insider about like oh best places for younger like whatever people to live um and well yeah it was whatever like 10 years ago now is i guess that's a lot younger um and you know different different places popped up uh uh, Dallas popped up, Plano popped up, generally Plano, so like north north of DFW, um, popped up as like great area to live, raise a family, have kids, great like quality of life. Uh, we looked at like Raleigh because she was working for a big broker dealer at the time in regulatory compliance and they had an office out there. Thought Boston would be fun, but it's cold and we don't like cold that much. Um, and I thought about Atlanta too because it was kind of on the upswing, um, but no, Dallas was kind of kind of piqued the interest. I had some friends out here. I'd visited a couple times. I always loved the town. And uh, we kind of thought, you know, if it sucks, we'll just leave. Uh, and so far, it hasn't sucked. Okay. So that first deal you did, 2006. When was the next deal? Was it after that one was sold or was it simultaneous to that deal? No, the next deal was actually uh, December of 2006. It was 98 units uh, from the same seller. I arranged a similar circumstance with the financing. So you bought a, the seller bought a pool of four properties or maybe five, I think, from um, one, I don't want to judge the guy, but consider the occupancy and the quality of the properties. He was a bit of a slumlord. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so the seller that I bought him from bought four properties out of foreclosure. Uh, I have no idea what he got them for, like less than I did, so good for him. And I think he financed them all with the same lender. So he sold off, he had sold off two before uh, this. Um, no, he hadn't actually, he still had, I think he actually, no, I think he had all four of them. Uh, I got the best two of the deal. So the one was a big value add. The 112 units was the big value add property. Uh, the second one was 98 units. Um, did the same thing where the seller carried a second, uh, a smaller second. I think it was only 50 or 60 K cause it was more stabilized property. Uh, he wasn't really an operator, so he didn't want to do the rehab. He bought it really cheap. He was able to kind of stabilize and kind of clean up a little bit, but he didn't want to like operate the properties. Um, it's fine. So we came in, had the hard money lender, uh, did the financing on the first, um, and then ended up refinancing the properties. I'm not sure exactly. Maybe a year after we owned that one, I think. Um, got takeout financing that was um, uh, relative, relatively good financing, I guess. Uh, actually, that bank, ironically, <laughs> ended up going defunct in the financial crash. So that says something about the product that they were in, uh, in terms of like their risk appetite, maybe, I don't know. Um, and that was it. My first flip wasn't until I bought a house, uh, the next year, 2007, I bought one house, not to make life easy. It was a house without the top half because it had been hit by lightning. Um, oh my gosh. and, uh, so we obviously bought it as a flip, uh, bird that one. That was cool. Bird that with a, um, loan from bank of America at like 2%. We got a, 
uh, line of credit on it. So that was that was great. So that cash flowed like a mofo for a couple of years. I don't remember when I sold that, 2011 or 12. I don't remember. Um, and then, again, lost money on the first uh, flipping, uh, the first big property, the 112 units. Lost money on that. So I went back to California and just bought as much cheap stuff as I could in the Inland Empire. A couple flips in San Diego. But didn't really have like a volume-based mindset living out there. Um, people were doing volume, I suppose. I didn't know who they were. And uh, the business model wasn't so obvious about how to like really scale and expand. So I think... I think that's kind of why I moved to Dallas. I thought I could do more volume out here. Turns out I could have done plenty of volume in San Diego too, but I just didn't really didn't really put two and two together at the time. Sure. The episode will continue in just a moment. As an investor, we know it's important to stay on top of market trends and real estate opportunities that add value to your portfolio. We also know that having a trusted source of reliable information to help you stay a step ahead of other investors is critical to your success. If you're interested in having these types of resources, as well as access to me and my team, I invite you to join the Empire Investment Club, a free service that gives you an easier way to make sense of today's and tomorrow's real estate opportunities. As a member of the Empire Investment Club, you'll get access to relevant resources and investment-focused experiences such as live interactive webinars, market trend presentations, and investor socials designed to equip you with what you need to succeed. So whether you're an active investor, passive investor, a combination of both, or just starting out, the club is where you'll get what you need to build a portfolio you love. To join, just head over to jenniferdehesus.com, sign up, and we'll see you in the club where everyone's on a journey to becoming a better investor. Who did you use for mentors during all this? Were you just doing your own research and yeah, due diligence? No, I'm really bad. That's you know what? That's probably one of my biggest failings. Is I've always had um, I wouldn't say a mentor about here's how you do everything. I've always had people that would be uh, able to give advice or an outlook on uh, a piece of a thing. But like maybe maybe hiring people or employing people. There's a ended up being a good friend of mine. who was our HVAC contractor in Memphis. He had a big team and a big company. He was a good dude and he became a bit of a mentor from like a hiring perspective, but never like a business kind of coach, holistic mentor. Um, never really had one of those. Probably would have gone farther than I had, maybe if I'd done that earlier. Um, I've joined Masterminds and done the education thing more recently, and it's definitely elevated business to a certain level. I think there's a lot of, if you, you get into a trap of taking advice from people that maybe aren't in the position that you actually want to be in. And it's generally, it can be well-intentioned, but it's not necessarily uh, uh, applicable to where you're wanting to go in life. So I think it's really, it's really difficult to know who you ought to take advice from, uh, even, sure. even from a mentorship perspective. Um, I knew about like the rich dad education programs. Uh, Trump university was big. I remember going to like a, one of his two day things is like, I'm looking around going like, I don't want to be like any of these people uh, because they were talking about doing one flip at a time. And they were talking about, investing in something passively. So, yeah, I'm not really interested in that. I want to do something bigger. So yeah, kind of went all out, I guess. Okay. When did you get into wholesaling? Mm, not until Texas, actually. I think it was after, I don't even think our first wholesale deal was until I moved to Texas. Um, I don't remember the first wholesale deal. Now that I haven't thought about it. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of benefits to it. So we moved out here like nine years ago, uh, did a couple flips. Um, again, had some sidetracks that, uh, ended up breaking my back and having a bad accident where I had to learn how to walk again. Oh, so no. kind of set things back a little bit. Sure. Um, I don't know if that was on my little bio or whatever, but so that kind of set things back for a, a while. Uh, got back into real estate flipping, ended up building a construction company. 
Um, and then because my mindset just wasn't into real estate for a while, I was kind of burned out. Uh, I don't know, seven years ago, probably something like that. We've never been starting out with just my wife and I in Dallas. We never were wanting to do just wholesaling because I think wholesaling is such a, uh, such a niche, such a niche market that it's, it's easy to scale in a good market. If you have a good team that you can negotiate, that can negotiate well with deals. Um, it's a relatively low margin in terms of like exit strategy and a very confining in terms of that. So we like to say in our current business, we, again, we do a pretty good volume. Um, we try to, we try to manage the exit strategy with the entry strategy when we're negotiating with sellers and wholesaling is definitely a huge part of that because it's a great opportunity that you can offer sellers. And, uh, from a business standpoint, obviously the velocity of being able to turn over a deal relatively quickly is huge for cash flow. So it's, it's, it's really good. It's a, it's a good additive for the business where people tend to get into trouble is where they try to scale it up, um, without trying to do other stuff at the same time. Um, because as you build a team and as you increase marketing expense and as you increase team members, then obviously your overhead and your operational expense goes up quite a bit. So you have to basically, if you're just wholesaling and if you're just going on kind of national numbers, you have to triple or quadruple your volume versus if you're doing it all by yourself. So the way we, the way we do it is we negotiate better. Uh, we sell better by having wholesaling as one of our exit strategies. And we, we keep a small team that's relatively uh, more robust than a lot of our competitors in terms of being able to um, just negotiate well with sellers and understands the different sub-markets. Because if, if all you're doing is selling on, as a wholesaler, selling on whatever it is, 80% minus repairs, minus whatever you buy it for as a wholesale fee, then that's great. But you're, you're ignoring all the other opportunities for that property. Um, we bought a property with way less equity than that as a sub-2 rental. But it's cash flowing, uh, 500 bucks a month. We did that a month and a half ago, and we're into the thing like 12 grand, which is insane. Um, we uh, contract a property over the weekend that I don't even know anything about it, but we'll probably make about 80 to 90 on it just wholesaling. So it's really, it's really a good, like you're missing out on, I would say probably half the business and a ton of the upside if it's just a wholesaling model. The good thing about wholesaling is it's very scalable. The hard thing about wholesaling is it's rather difficult to scale at a highly profitable level. Okay. So how did you scale it? Because you're, you're currently doing it. So how, yeah. how did you scale it? How many people do you have on your team? Where did you find them from? What do they do? Yeah, all, all the above. Um, all the above. I, I think the mindset for scaling originally was I really don't like talking to sellers. So my wife and I move out here. We're doing all the different pieces. We're doing our flips. We're doing a couple of wholesales. I'm dropping off paint and trying to answer the phone. And everyone thinks that, oh, if I hire someone, they're going to work at whatever the number is, 75% of my ability or some, you know, some made up number they just think sounds fancy for the statistics. They're only going to work at 80%, 70%, whatever, my best day. Well, that may or may not be true. And actually, I think it's not true. But realistically, you don't work at 100% of your capacity all the time with all the different pieces if you have to do all the different things, because you just don't want to. And because it's very difficult. So if you have to answer the phone to take an inbound lead, that you can make 30 grand on, but you have to drop off paint buckets. So you don't call them back until the next day. Well, now you lost a deal that you don't even know that you had um, versus right. plus if you don't like talking to sellers, you're not as inclined to want to talk to them. It's not that sellers are bad people, but their houses tend to, they always have a bad stories. Like, I don't want to listen to your story. I've heard your story 20 times. The house smells kind of funny. Um, and I got to burn my jeans after I get out of the house. So <laughs> for me, it was more like uh, scaling from like lack of desire to do that piece of the business. So I hire an acquisitions guy. It's like, okay, well now I have an acquisitions guy or two. Now I have to have enough leads to make sure they eat. 
So that's a responsibility aspect. And then, well, now I'm making less money because they're taking a piece. So now I got to get more leads to give them more money to get, make me more money. And then at some point you say, you know what, we just need to build a whole team because it's the best way to do business. And it's a lot more fulfilling to uh, uh, really invest in the team members. So we have uh, three people on acquisitions. We have two on Dispo. Uh, I guess with my wife, kind of three on Dispo. Um, I have a business partner that leads up the acquisition side. Uh, he loves the negotiation side. He loves the creative um, negotiation structure. So he runs uh, he runs the acquisition side. I barely and he's uh, good at training people. I do the construction. I do the marketing, and I do the kind of business. I like to say that I I'm I'm like the janitor. Uh, I make sure everything's cleaned up. I'm I'm probably the lowest margin product that we have because if we're doing a flip. We're going to be in a flip, you know, four months or five months. If we're doing a wholesale, we're going to be in the deal, you know, three or four weeks. So inherently, I'm already low margin. So I'm expendable in that respect. But um, it's my job to make sure that kind of everything else keeps rolling and all the kids play nice together in the sandbox. And it, it works well because uh, we have a good team of people that complement our kind of issues. Um, and we, like, I think all of us know how to do all the different pieces, but there's pieces that we don't like doing. So we rely on other people to do those pieces. Um, I think it's nine. I think we have nine plus some VAs in the office might be seven. I got to count. I don't remember. Okay. And then all your work that you're doing on the construction side, is it all subbed out work or do you actually have employees now in the construction company? No. Um, it's all subbed out right now. I think we've had project managers, uh, kind of, they can waste a lot of money and it's not, it's not that big a deal. In our flips, we have a pretty, um, we have a pretty cookie cutter approach to how we, how we do the flips. We'll, we'll do higher end ones. We'll do lower end ones. The cheapest ones are in the, you know, 150 to 200 range. Our most expensive one right now is a million bucks pre-sold actually sold it before we had drywall, even up on the walls. So we definitely run the, we definitely run the range, but we put in a very similar product. Um, we do a very similar look and we've used the crews that we've used. We've used them for years so my main GC I've actually known since we moved out to Dallas. So I've known him actually over nine years, I think. And we use him a lot. And he's just a good dude. Um, uh, we bring in other subs for obviously the skilled trades. And he's able to do a lot of the kind of what would be like project management stuff already. And him and I just, we know what we like. We know what we do. I'll, sometimes I'll text him a scope and uh, just tell him to get going and kind of go from there. Okay. So what happened with the investors on that first deal that where you lost money? What happened after that? Uh, well, unfortunately, I'm still related to them. So you're still... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so they couldn't disown you, right? They couldn't They yeah. couldn't be unrelated to you magically. Yeah, it might have been better if we could have just cut ties. No, they're, they're great people. They've, uh, they've, they've, made, they've made it back. They're okay. They keep investing in the person, not so much the product at this point, I think. So they're, they're, I think they're doing okay. That's awesome. I asked that because I feel like, you know... You know, real estate is full of ups and downs and, you know, you're bound to, if you're in the business for a long period of time, you're bound to have something that doesn't go according to plan. And I feel like that sometimes is the thing that derails people. They just give up. They're just like, ah, it didn't work. I'm done. I'm not going to do this again. But you jump back on the horse and you're like, no, nope, I'm going to do it again. And I'm going to do it. I'm going to keep doing it. So, you know, what, what did that, that loss teach you what was the most valuable lesson you took from that actual first experience um well time the market better was the biggest one because again 2008 i don't think anyone was seeing it being quite as kind of catastrophic as it was it definitely gave me a different perspective on um commercial properties just uh obviously the way cap rates work if you got 100 units and you raise rent say 100 bucks a unit 
by keeping your expenses the same, then you make a million bucks. You actually make about a million two or something if it's a 10% cap. Um, uh, the problem with that is in a down market, if you miss or if the market actually shifts and rents go down, um, you can lose a million bucks just as quick by having to drop rents to stay occupied. So it's it's a like leverage is definitely a two way sword. It became it made me a lot more kind of conservative, probably to my detriment um, because the best thing I should have done probably my biggest missed opportunity was uh, I probably shouldn't have broken my back. That was kind of that kind of sucked um, <laughs> because that made me just not interested in real estate for about a year and a half. Um, but that would have been the perfect time. And I knew all the like knowledge base to get back into commercial real estate hard before the most recent run up in all that stuff. Cause I saw it, we moved here to Dallas kind of to do that, or at least look at the opportunities. We knew it was an uphill battle cause we didn't know anyone in town in that field, but uh, you know, that's probably the biggest missed opportunity. Um, I think when stuff started peaking out about two, three years ago, we started seeing just stuff that didn't make sense. Um, people saying things like, Oh, cap rates don't matter on properties, all that matters is raising money and the ROI that the investor gets based on the interest rate differential that they're paying and what they're able to rent it for. It's like, you know, that only works if you have long-term fixed interest rates and it only works if uh, rates don't go up. And the likelihood of rates not going up from a two-year-ago basis, I thought was zero. Uh, And I just wasn't sure that I was smart enough or really desired to try to compete on that level with those folks and make a good deal when I knew how to do a high volume of residential stuff that we could turn over quickly, predictably, um, and we could build a team around doing that and doing it well. So it's always a give and take, I guess. Um, there's there's benefits and there's disadvantages. Understood. So are you uh, buying and holding properties today? We do we do a, a decent number of rentals. Yeah. Uh, our peak was definitely the 200 and, well, 210 plus another 10, so 220-ish or something back in the day. That was fun. Um, we have a handful. We're very selective because uh, unless you buy really well with the rising interest rate environment, it's a little difficult to burr. So we'll do something creative. We'll do, you know, we'll do a sub two on something, but we definitely keep that in a pretty small, like niche box. Um, we're not crazy on using that as a, like a main acquisition strategy. Um, we're doing a lot of notes. So we're doing a lot of where we become the bank and we sell a property with us offering financing to the end buyer. Yeah, that's a good, so you don't get the upside, you don't get the appreciation, you don't get the depreciation on the te- from a tax standpoint, but you get a lot of cash flow and you get a lot of no headaches. And if you originate the note well, and if you have a quality borrower, then it's a very low default rate. So, I mean, no one wants to turn, talk about turnover on rentals, but, you know, turnover sucks. Uh, we've had properties this year that we've had to rent twice just because the first time, and we're pretty good operators, but just because the first tenant had something come up and uh, they want to move out. Like, well, what are you supposed to do? Obviously, you can sue them and you can do all that. But realistically, the only thing you can do is put it back on the market and rent it again. Um, the note, the notes don't tend to default and they cash flow really well. So we we warehouse some of those. We sell some of those to other investors that just want to cash flow. And our next step is we're going to be raising a debt fund for basically warehousing the notes at a, at a bigger level. So we're in the kind of beginning stages of uh, paying attorneys a lot of money for putting all that together for us. Sure. And you're still wholesaling and flipping as well as holding oh, the yeah. properties and doing oh, yeah. the notes now? Yeah, all of the above. Okay. Uh, we have six six flips going. Um, I don't know how many wholesales we have going because, like I said, they come on. They, we had, so last week, for example, uh, is a great week. We had five sales um, of some kind or another. Uh, one was land. I guess the rest of them, two of them are like regular wholesales, I think. Uh, one was a seller finance deal. And I'm missing one. I don't even know what the other one was. Um, and we signed uh, six contracts, no, seven contracts from Monday to Saturday last week. Um, 
and those contracts, to be honest, uh, we skipped our Monday meeting because uh, the acquisition team had appointments. So I'm not even sure what those contracts are, except I have a pretty good idea that they're pretty good deals because they're trained well. Um, one key to scaling no one talks about is you got to drop the ball because uh, everyone wants to control every piece and everyone wants to replace themselves, but you can't do both at the same time. So if you rely on the training, often I find the team members on the team uh, have more faith in our ability to do the business than we do ourselves at a scaled level because they see every piece of the transaction or they see the marketing and they are taking the leads and kind of doing the thing. Whereas you're questioning like, man, we're going to try this new marketing thing. We're going to spend twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 on it. Shit, I hope it pays off. But as long as we have, you know, something that's already working, then the, the team kind of already has faith that it's going to work. It's our job to make sure it works. So sure. sometimes it's easy to kind of lose faith in yourself, uh, especially when you're trying new stuff. So what's what's on the horizon next besides the uh, wholesaling and the fund? What What is next for you? Um, well, if we raise a bunch of money in the fund, we're going to have to do more deals. So we probably ought to double our volume again and go from, I don't know, 32 to 35 to maybe 50 deals at a time. That sounds like a lot of work. Uh, yeah. <laughs> sounds like a lot of work. Um, I think we probably ought to get into some kind of ground up development. Uh, I think the numbers on that still make a lot of sense. Um, we're doing some land, mostly on smaller lots, uh, and it makes some decent money. I think there's there's definitely a lot of uh, transactional revenue for like like splitting up land, um, and that's kind of that's kind of where we're going. Uh, I'm not a big believer in retiring. I don't think like I don't know anyone that I don't know anyone that retires that's really all that happy. I don't really I don't know. Like I like building the thing. Like I said, you get to the top of the mountain, you look around. If there's not a taller mountain, then you know maybe you're at the end of the road. Maybe you. Uh, need to try something else so as long as we keep seeing higher mountains we keep climbing so are you in any other states now other than texas california tennessee the ones that you were already working in we're predominantly in north texas uh we've done some stuff in south carolina uh we played with some stuff in florida um a year and a half ago so that was pretty good we got to go back down there again because that's a good market um uh we're doing a lot of marketing definitely heavy in dallas houston um not really in austin a little bit in Oklahoma, and I think I want to test out some in um, – people think I'm nuts. I kind of want to test out some stuff in Little Rock in Arkansas. I might be nuts. I mean, that might be a dumb idea. I don't know. Okay. So, All right. So what would you say that is your best-kept secret? Um, best-kept secret? I, we kind of put stuff out there. Like uh, It's always funny when someone thinks they can – I don't know. Says so I'm like, dude, I know about your past. You lost money on some deal at some point. Like, well, yeah, I tell people about it. Like, it's not that hard, right? Uh, <laughs> best kept secret. Um, you know, I, I don't miss living in California, but I do miss scuba diving and surfing. That was fun. I used to do that about a couple times a week, probably. So I, I don't know if that's a secret. Uh, I know. Here's something very un- unmanly and unreal estate. Uh, I really enjoy gardening with my daughter. She's four. And we built a garden in the backyard. Uh, it's uh, 10 feet by 20 feet, I think. Brought in like, it's above ground, not above ground, but like a, a like kind of raised ish or whatever. So I brought in a bunch of mulch and dirt and stuff. And we planted a lot of different stuff. And it turns out that like the idea is she's four, right? The idea is, well, if she sees the vegetables grow, she's going to want to eat more vegetables. That's actually not the way it works. Uh, she likes seeing them grow and she wants to eat the strawberries and the blackberries and the rest of that stuff, like kale and lettuce and um, beets and radishes and carrots, not really all that interesting to her. So, I mean, oh, well. So now I have to eat more vegetables, I guess. <laughs> That's awesome. It's great that real estate provides you the time to do those types of things, too. 
You make time for the important stuff for sure. Uh, I think the change in perspective from being able to invest in people and in uh, the guys out there being able to make them successful. Yeah, it's a different level of stress, but that's really the step about being able to actually kind of buy back some of your time is again, giving, giving up a lot of the control where it's okay if you don't know every lead that comes in because you know that they're following up with them as well as they possibly can. Okay. If you had to give my listeners a, make sure you do this and make sure you don't do this to get started or to scale their investing career, what would those two things be? What to do and what not to do from your past experiences? So so what to do is definitely a little mindset is um, think about the outcome that you're trying to get to when you're going a certain direction. Because a lot of people think they want to increase their volume. Oh, I have to do 15 deals at a time. Well, that's it's going to decrease your margin. It has to. That's just the way it goes. So look at, you know, look at, uh, look at where you want to go and see if once you're there, you actually want to be there because some of the biggest mistakes I've had, uh, not, in, not in Memphis. That's not really a mistake. Actually the construction and everything else is relatively successful, but in terms of like missed opportunities, in terms of fear of taking the next step with something where it's pretty obvious that I should be going a certain way is in not really understanding, um, you know, getting a thing, and then do I actually want the thing once I have it? So make sure you want the thing once you have it. Oh, I have to get a flip. I have to get a flip. That's an easy perspective, right? Uh, you know, that, that desperation, thinking that you have to place money or have to get a flip or have to do the next deal is where you end up missing an opportunity that's right in front of you or you end up getting into something that you probably shouldn't be in. Um, so I think that's, that's what you do do. Uh, what, you, what you don't do is um, don't be scared of failure. Yeah, definitely don't be scared of failure because if you've never lost money on a deal, you haven't done enough deals um, or you've been in the best market in the history of mankind for the past decade. And you don't know uh, that there's other market cycles and other things that happen in the market. So don't be scared of failure because it, all the things that have formed our ability to do what we do have been from some really annoying struggle. So uh, taking over and managing stuff at 25 to 26 in Memphis, when I, probably wasn't like I probably wasn't really qualified for it to be honest with you. I mean, I was good at it, but only because I was determined and tenacious, um, breaking my back, learning how to walk again. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy, but, uh, it's definitely formed our mindset and ability. My wife and I both, because she was there every night in the hospital with me and working through the process, it formed our ability and our mindset to go, uh, push for building the thing. So the failures, they suck. They're horrible. They're not good, but, even if they're not your fault because you don't see them, um, the outcome is your responsibility. So push through them because they definitely give you the ability to go to the next thing. And also you don't always know what the next thing is. So you don't know what, I don't know, uh, God or fate or the universe is preparing for you until you take the step to go move that direction. That's awesome. Well, TJ, you are a great motivational person. Well, thank you. You definitely, um, you just have a lot of insight and a lot of great direction and your ability to just go after this real estate thing with, with no fear. is just <laughs> incredible. It's really, really incredible. Like I said, you don't know too many people that are in the hundred plus units on their first deal to begin with. So uh, the fact that you did that, I, I think is really commendable. Well, thank you. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you for your knowledge and uh, your insight. And we wish you all the success in the world in the future. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode with my special guest, TJ Cozen. I hope you enjoyed everything that TJ had to offer as far as mentorship and how to get started 
and what to do if you're entering into the world of wholesaling. I think his creative ideas on how to acquire deals and how to build a team were extremely helpful. And I hope you can take something that will be beneficial in your investing career. Until next time, take care. For more information about how Jennifer can help you plan, develop, and manage a strong real estate investment portfolio, visit growingempires.com.